Greetings, building science enthusiasts, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. This week's episode has no sponsor message at all. Instead, I just wanted to take a minute and thank you, our listeners, for all you do to keep this show going. We've got some great episodes coming up on topics like perspectives from HVAC installers, indoor air quality, market change, enclosures, how codes affect building science, chemicals in homes, building materials, etc. And to help to keep the show going, I'd like to ask a small favor of you. There's actually a lot you can do to support us in very simple ways. You could share just a single episode with someone who might be interested. You could even share this episode. You can review the show on iTunes, Google, and Stitcher. You can visit our sponsors and their websites and let them know that we sent you there. And you can even encourage the manufacturers that you know to sponsor the show. We love doing this, and we plan on continuing to do it for as long as we possibly can, and as long as you keep showing up to listen. So thank you again. Please do the very small bit that you can to help us out. And we have an Instagram, too, if that's your thing. It's at BLDGScienceATX. So check us out, and enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science to the Building Science Podcast. 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 Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Christoph Irwin here, as always, with my trusty sidekick, Miguel. Hey, everyone. And I'm also here with Brad King. Hello. And I should know your company name. Tell me. Tell Earth, us your... Earthbound Builders. Okay. Let's start there. Tell us what Earthbound Builders does. Uh, we really specialize in uh, the use and, and kind of most valuable um, applications of locally abundant, natural, minimally processed, uh, low embodied energy building materials. So, right. Oh, that's a good list of adjectives. Yeah. I mean, there's a million ways to describe the stuff, but basically what's here and in large quantities and is easy to, um, to get to and to utilize in ways that increase performance and aesthetic quality and the feeling. And, and, and recently I've been more and more interested, especially in indoor air quality and how those, those right. dynamics. Mm-hmm. We were talking about hygric buffer a minute ago. We'll get into that. Yeah. So, okay, so that's the introduction, you guys. You heard that, right? Naturally occurring, locally sourced, low embodied energy materials for building. And I'll just give you a hint. This is not the mainstream trend in building. <laughs> yeah, far, far, far. And uh, if you haven't listened to the episode with Kiel Mo from uh, Harvard uh, Graduate School of Design, he is talking about this all the time. He's talking about, you know, the, um, in fact... Uh, Bill Bram was talking about too with the, the embodied energy and materials as being like one of the main metrics we need to think about. Mm-hmm. Okay, Car- so how did you? Uh... Oh, just carbon. Uh, carbon. You know, like mm-hmm. thinking in terms of CO two sequestering materials yeah. and how much energy goes into things. And... Yeah, you know, in fact, um, there's a guy named Odom mm-hmm. Howard Odom did a book called Systems Ecology, and yep. he talks about uh, solar m joules mm-hmm. as a different. It, it's it's a different you know um, Earth's environment. It's what's embodied in this energy. Like, so here's a glass right here with water in it. So this glass, it actually was produced with energy that was stored sunshine, yeah. right? So that's where he goes to. So, so carbon and M-joules, solar M-joules are, are actually a similar metric, but it's his base metric. Mm. 
But that's not where this episode's going to go. So first, how did you get started with Earthbound Builders? Well, I met my partners on a on a restoration project of a 160-year-old, uh, it's a slip-formed earthen rubble wall system, just happened to be something that had survived, you know, in Austin. Um, and there were only a couple of sections of the build, original building still on the property, and I needed a ton of work. Wow. And it most was primarily the binder in the whole monolithic wall system was like local clay. Um, and there was some stabilization with lime as well, but then we're doing clay plasters and lime plasters and naturally hydraulic lime plasters in some cases on the exterior of it. And wow. So what is that wall called? What would you call that wall? Uh, it was historically called a slip form rubble wall system. Okay. And there was a pamphlet circulated in like the, you know, 1800s sometime 1860s or something like that and there's various examples of it all throughout the west where people had this pamphlet in their you know in their supplies or whatever slip form rubble walls yeah basically they would they would lay up courses they kind of like coil pot the entire building um, using river rock and mud and and clay and lime depending on the weather conditions wait could you say what coil pot is briefly yeah just um they're using a form like a, a you know, some sort of board on either side of, of the wall off of the foundation, adding a bunch of um, clay bound and had a lot of silt and sand as well in it, um, wet material into the form and then pushing big chunks of rock down. Wow. Kind of like, almost like, it almost forms like a clasped bearing, you know, conglomerate or something. It's like all the big chunks of rock are, are loading on each other, but they're just kind of bedded in this matrix of fairly... Um, you know, water soluble, open, vapor open, very like, uh, yeah, kind of natural. So like a mud wall uh, with rocks in it. Yeah, basically mud and rocks, and uh, you know, it was arched openings, and um, uh-huh. there was it was a big it was a big project. They why added do they it. call it coil pot? Oh, I said coil pot because if you've ever coiled a pot in kindergarten or whatever, it's pretty much the same process. You just add a little bit to the top of the wall all the way around, uh-huh. and you build the building up. Very similar to um, Cobb construction, if you've ever seen mm-hmm. books about Cobb. It's just using a form to contain it all rather than um, hand applying mm-hmm. and sculpting so it. So like a coil of rope makes a little cylinder that you can Yeah, if you work with clay, you know, you can make little clay pots often you do in, in kindergarten, first grade or whatever. You take little ropes of clay and you kind of lay them on top of each other and push them together and smush them together. And that's more or less how that building went up with big chunks of rock in it. Um, we were doing a lot of, we had to remove sections, redo whole wall intersections and stuff. So there was some load-bearing masonry that was done with it, and there was a huge addition to the project. Anyway, I just was working for a guy here. Um, he had, he was the first person I met that was into natural building in Austin when I moved back here from Washington State. Mm. And I had gotten into natural building in Washington State because I was working with homeless youth, teenagers. Um, that were staying sometimes in an emergency shelter uh, in western Washington that I worked at. And I was also uh, working for a, a metal roofing company at the time, so I kind of split my time between the shelter and the and the, the world of new residential construction, mm. and uh, which is a really weird space to live in for a couple of years, yeah. um, just in terms of seeing all the, you know, social and economic and kind of cultural aspects of, of the construction world and, and then, you know, teens, youth that are slipping through the cracks and stuff. Um, yeah, and I, that's intense. Yeah. And I had kind of, um, I was really interested in just shelter in general. And I was still pretty young, my early twenties. 
and trying to figure out what I wanted to do more with my life and I always loved building stuff. Um, never was interested in grad school or, you know, professionalism in some kind of larger sense. So I just wanted to find a way to build stuff in a way that was useful and um, that could support myself and that could provide much needed, healthy, you know, safe, comfortable, kind of passive um, environments for people that relied less on, on mechanical systems and expensive uh, bits and pieces that had to go into a new construction. So Yeah. Yeah. And then when I moved here, I found Frank Meyer. He's a wonderful builder. He's been around here for a long time um, doing straw bale houses and earthen plasters and lime plasters. And I met him at a workshop that I was volunteering at and we became good friends and I worked for him for a couple of years. And then I met my partners that ended up starting Earthbound with me at that restoration project working for Frank. So fantastic. And that was maybe eight years ago, something like that. Mm -hmm. That was my first big plaster um, experience. And then I, th I think, you know, we've gone more towards plaster because that's some place where I feel like the, you can really make a lot, you can hit a lot of the sweet spots of performance and aesthetics and just the feeling of a space. Mm -hmm. um, you can do it on just about any building. And uh, we've dabbled in whole natural wall system construction. We've done some compressed earth uh, masonry projects and um, we've worked on a bunch of straw bale houses doing the That's wall system cool. and um, we've done everything from sourcing local cedar that was you know and pine from the fires and bastrop and putting that to good use in screen room constructions and additions to high-end plaster work on you know multi-million dollar custom homes and a wide spectrum of things whatever we could put what's <laughs> here to good use and, yeah what's yeah. here around us right yeah. right so that, that is the theme for today, is to talk, of, talk about low embodied energy materials. But you did touch on the, the construction industry and that juxtaposition of um, you know, the, the market forces versus what's here, right? Mm. So you know, what's available to be used for construction is largely irrelevant today. Right? Oh, yeah. you know, what's available are trucks and ship, <laughs> yeah. shipping containers and materials that move around the world. And, um, you know, and I, capital. and, and it, yeah, so, it, <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to veer into this any farther, so mm -hmm. I'll just leave it at that. Other than to say that for professionals like you and companies like Positive Energy, that is the existing industry. That is the, the market norm. And do you engage with it or do you turn your back on it and try to create a new industry? There, there's a fundamental tension there. Yeah. Um, and so we're currently in the mode of trying hard to engage with it, you know, trying to educate. Yeah, I mean, I, I often describe it as, for us, like, trying, we're in the, constantly in this process of, iterative process of trying to figure out how to interject ourselves into the conventional workflow of green building. Yeah, and hence this podcast. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> no, seriously, the, 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 often I'm surprised by what people don't know. I mean, obviously, I don't know if you know, but positive energy is really all about mechanical systems mm -hmm. for the most part. I shouldn't say that. Positive energy is about everything, but the mechanical system understanding of our society and the willingness to think about it and engage with it is abysmally low, oh, yeah. generally speaking. People don't know, they don't care, mm -hmm. and so the mechanical system world just stays kind of stuck with static uh, processes and systems. 
and static pressure too. Yeah. In, high, in high static <laughs> pressure, yeah. You know, I, I, we've joked about the hegemony oh, of an enclosurism. Like the uh -huh. hegemony meaning uh -huh. it's getting all the bandwidth of the room. And everyone's talking about different enclosures. And it's like, okay, if you live in Austin, Texas, and you're only an enclosurist, well, you're going to have a lot of heat and humidity. Like that. yeah. <laughs> so that's plus But the point being, getting back to the commonality, it is that you need to work on these high-end custom homes to yeah. have people know you exist. And then... What's really happening is human caring. People care about what they do. People care about what they know. Even a production builder, right? He or she cares about their family. This is a way to produce a livelihood. And so ultimately, exactly. I'm upbeat. It's going to work out. Yeah. And I think what you hit on, like caring about what they understand, I mean, that's a big part of the work and also the uh, reward of what we do is, you know, I, I've always felt that people are generally just disengaged and detached from their physical reality um, mm -hmm. and we just kind of live in our heads and in our to-do lists and our you know very very overly busy lives and it's really hard to find um, you know peace and quiet and, and a sense of satisfaction in our home lives a lot of times and in our work life um, and things like perceived indoor air quality you know you may not care at all about that but when you walk into a space that has really good um, that's functioning the fabric of the building is functioning well and that's comfortable in the way that you know human habitation is kind of has a natural affinity for it feels different you feel better and it it's like you know noticing that working in these buildings um, for a decade or whatever it just has become more and more clear that we need to like help people reconnect by just like we do with nature people need to reconnect with nature they need to experience like um, dappled light that moves a lot and they mm -hmm, need to mm -hmm. and those things are really important for even productivity in an office space mm -hmm. you know lighting can really affect productivity mm -hmm. that kind of thing um you know we've got all this evolution backed up building these brains that help us process the world around us and then we've just like totally compartmentalized <laughs> that brain in this weird flat sterile, rectilinear yeah, white walls it's totally sterile thermal box. blandness <laughs> and it's just it's not satisfying it's it really yeah um it's it's consumerism on a scale that is destroying the planet destroying our personal lives and it's just kind of unnecessary if we're willing to pay attention to what is already here and what you know how we feel about it and learn the stuff that we need to learn about it. I found that, you know, high-end architect design custom houses, those are those are the people for whom the narrative of this material came from here. It's good for me and my children. This building can mm -hmm. go back to the earth without any harm being done when it's when we're done using it. Um, all those things They're receptive to that. Yeah, they're receptive because they're already paying attention to mm -hmm. the world around them in a way that yeah that, that there's a real value in that unfortunately there are very very few people who value that stuff um, so it's hard to find most people most of the industry is dominated just by efficiency and cost and mm -hmm. price per square foot and especially when you get into the general contractors and their subs and how that whole thing goes down on, a, on an actual job site there's just very few opportunities to do any real yeah, thinking. Schedule or, and budget are king, and it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And well, well said. Um, I'm trying to veer us away, but this oh, is sorry, really, yeah. really, really rich stuff. You got to bring me in. It's really important what you said. And, I, and we have said on the podcast before that we, ultimately we want, want something out of life that's psychological. I want a good experience of life, a positive experience of life. 
and so that's psychological but we can't ignore biology right so that and this idea that health is the new green indoor air quality mm -hmm. becoming important i really think it is a trend to say wait wait i have this body i have this i'm pulling this air into this body it's all that i am it's the yeah, stuff I, am. I put in it right? yeah exactly and it's the dominant intake so okay so those of you that might have wondered if this was the Building Science <laughs> Podcast or the Building Philosophy <laughs> Podcast, but so on a day-to-day -day basis, you're doing things like earth, natural clay plasters yeah. and um, natural lime coatings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lime plasters, start, lime renders, um, local clay-bound materials. So, uh, for so local work, clay, not even... Yeah, mm. and that's a big thing. Um, there are a lot of bagged products you know, American clay is kind of the most popular one and they, they're great products. Um, very, very thin, you know, coatings, more or less like a trowel on paint. Um, hmm. So what do you do with that's different? Uh, or, actually, or do you do that as well? We, we have done, we have done American clay projects when it was appropriate for the task, but you can do amazing things with the clay, the spectrum of naturally occurring subsoils that we have here. In Central yeah. Texas. In Central Texas, right. Mm -hmm. So if you go, you know, east of the Balcones Fault out into the area of Bastrop and south of there, you get a lot of this really red, rich iron oxide-based um, clays and subsoils. Um, those tend to be, sometimes they're a little more expansive than the stuff that we have west of town. Um, but west of town in the hill country, you get a lot of... Um, Limestone as the parent material, mm -hmm. the parent eroded Caliche. material. Mm -hmm. Caliche uh, bound up in the matrix of the clays. And they're just very different um, working characteristics of those two types. And you can blend them. You can use them for different types of, of, of application. How thick um, would they be on a wall? Or could they be the we whole? Liked the, well, that's really interesting from the building science perspective. You know, all the research that I've seen, the effective depth of a... Uh, a an adsorptive material like like clay it's a hydroscopic mm -hmm. um, matrix and so it's that was with a d by the way adsorptive ad, adsorptive right it's a thin film on the actual structure of it they can absorb they can adsorb a ton of, of moisture from the air whenever there's big spikes in relative humidity and they can re-release that out and generally the tests that people have done are on eight hour and 24 hour flux cycles um, and that's because of patterns in, you know, uh, people's schedules. Yeah, yeah, right. Showering and cooking and that kind of stuff. And the effective depth of plaster where that, that humidity is being absorbed into the thickness of the clay plaster generally is thought to kind of max out for a 24-hour cycle at no deeper than, you know, a centimeter, centimeter or a half, something mm, like that. Really? But it gets pretty deep into the wall even in that 24-hour that cycle. And then if you're talking about yearly cycles, you can go all the way up to, I think, 400 mils or the kind of general consensus that in a lot of climates, that much unfired clay masonry or plaster skin or however you're doing it, floors, um, depending on the finish, can can actually buffer an entire year cycle of, of both interior conditions and the outside. Uh, so by buffer, so. just to make it clear, you, you're, <clears throat> you're referring to hygric buffer. Yeah. Controlling the moisture conditions inside the conditions. Right. We're, trying, we're aiming for human health, right? Which mm -hmm. is respiratory health. What's that, like 50 to 60% yeah. relative humidity mm -hmm. seems like the sweet spot for yeah. limiting mold growth and That's right. allergens, all that mm -hmm. stuff, right? Um, clay does that naturally just by being on the wall 
you know, mm -hmm. taking the spikes of humidity out and, and putting it back when in when it's dry, right? And so you just get all this added performance from that thickness. And one of the and reasons you said roughly a half inch, slightly less than a half inch is maximum, maximum on an annual effective. basis. Mm -hmm. Well, four hundred mil on an annual basis. If you're trying to do like a whole structure, you know, model for it, that's generally where this is all like pretty fringe science too. There are, you know, maybe twelve or thirteen good. Um, university-based papers that I've seen. Okay. Not a ton of, of research mm -hmm, on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but generally, for our applications, you know, we think like a quarter inch thickness over drywall, over painted drywall, just you're in an eight-hour cycle, it's probably only getting, you know, five, six, seven mils depth. It depends on the pore structure of the mix and everything too, but you, um, you basically can't like steam up a mirror in a bathroom if there's clay plaster in there even a small amount a couple couple square yards of it wow. makes a big difference um, and then overall performance like heating and cooling that's even less well understand understood How much, say we did a quarter inch, how much mass is in a 10 foot square wall or how do you characterize it? Is it per square meter, per square foot? Yeah, the, well, are you talking about the, the, the weight absorb? of the clay? Yeah. Oh, the weight of the And then how much clay. water if you know that one too? Yeah. yeah. I mean, generally the water ranges, the tests that they've done, they call them, um, step response tests and it's in a controlled box or whatever and they have different types of material and usually they do the, it, the metric is grams per meter square okay. of adsorption, mm -hmm. um, and most materials are like minimal. You know, drywall and paint and and finished wood, anything that's sealed up, you know, basically has is not doing anything. Maybe one gram, two grams. Um, you get into unfinished wood, softwoods, especially if there's any ingrain exposed, you start seeing elevated amounts up to like you know 15 grams per meter squared. Clay comes out, clay plasters, depending on what you put in them, um, we, we formulate all of our own mixes using local clays and we add a lot of times cellulose fibers, both for controlling shrinkage and tooling, um, you know, aesthetics and stuff like that. But also because having that cellulose fiber does increase the amount of humidity that it can absorb. Nice. Um, you, generally the tests come out like between 40 grams per meter square and like 65 grams per meter square. Wow. So it's a lot of a lot of moisture that can, I mean and 65 grams is yeah. a, it's a significant amount of water if you mm -hmm. put it in a 454 cup. grams is a pint. Right. Right. So. So if you coat a house in, in this, you're talking about a fairly large amount of, you can, you know, enough that you can measure the weight difference of the, of the structure. It's, that's how they do it. And, laboratories yeah basically. and that's per square meter and so that's, that, per square meter. that's roughly i'm trying to think of it it's it's like a make a maybe a shot glass a little, something like a little that bit more maybe mm -hmm. but per square meter on a wall that, that's a lot of moisture yeah and not and and only pulling it out of the atmosphere right we're not talking about mm -hmm. you don't you want to keep liquid water away from clay plaster completely I, i'm just realizing i've never had the opportunity to plug my uncle's website before but he's a soil scientist Ooh. who goes by the name dr dirt so Dr. Dirt. If you really want to get into some interesting stuff about so his name is Clay Robinson. Nice. And uh, he, you might know him from his History Channel uh, debut uh, when he was speaking about the American Dust Bowl. Phenomenal show. 
Anyway, he's probably not listening to this podcast, but uh, maybe we can all go give his website the, the Building Science Podcast Hug of Death. What is that website? Uh, DrDirt.org. Doctor okay. all spelled out. Oh, and while we're doing plugging... And I'll connect you with him, too. Yeah, yeah I would love that. I yeah. Actually, a big part of um, using lime as a stabilizer for uh-huh. clays is, uh, you know, understanding that electrolytic solution of, of high alkaline, you know... You guys will have some fun conversations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. Wow. I'm, I'm into keeping that. it at a lower level. So, but what, while we're doing website plugs, what's yours? Uh, EarthboundBuilders.com. Yeah, very good. EarthboundBuilders.com. Straightforward. I really want to explore this, and I think a lot of listeners are very interested in these natural uh, clay plasters. So the, the there are some available bagged products. Yes. Can those be put on in these quarter-inch thick layers as well? No. Or are they incompatible with that process? Generally, just cost prohibitive, and of course, oh, you cost know, prohibitive. Yeah. Well. Yeah, like an American, a bag of American clay. I haven't looked recently. I don't want to. It's a great company. I don't want to say anything against them, um, but that generally it's like a credit card thickness that mm-hmm. people are putting on. So very very thin coats, and you can you can add a you and know how much a cheaper that get per square meter. Do you know? I have no idea. Somebody's, I'm sure, at American Clay has done tests for that. I bet if I got a hold of them. Okay. But they're not. You know, we're kind of the competition to that. Um, in natural, in there are a lot of people from the world of natural building, which is I should say is this own like subculture of it is, deep yeah. green ecological building, of which you know we participate in, but we also kind of straddle this the weird liminal space between you know green building and and natural building. Um, a lot of people from natural building make their livings doing plaster work in in custom residential um, settings. And that's that's American Clay's sweet spot. So I don't have anything bad to say about American Clay. It's a great product, um, but it is a very thin coating. It's mostly an aesthetic thing. It will increase, I'm sure, hydric buffering, you know, some. Um, and, and there's also the the VOC absorptive. Yeah, passive removal mm-hmm. materials. That's a whole other thing with clay that um, is super fascinating, and we're just kind of just getting into. It. I think they're actually maybe doing. So I did at some UT, work yeah. at UT, right? Mm, Dr. Corsi, yeah. Okay, I have not met him. Um, I I know that that was going on because I was we did I did a workshop through the architecture school with their material lab at, at UT, which is another cool resource. And we've done some uh, some mock-ups of different wall systems and stuff for them to have on display for gallery showings and stuff. But we don't know the results. Yeah, I don't. I I have not followed the. I've been trying to build my own house and. You know, right, that's all other topic. Right, so that's, I don't know where that is at right now, but there is a lot of promising research, especially like um, mitigating the effects of ozone, ozone and mm-hmm. creating all the, what are they, aldehydes mm-hmm. that, yeah. that are the toxins. Yeah, so. ozone's a very uh, dynamic molecule that takes other molecules apart, Right. which is great if the other molecule is an indoor air quality pollutant, mm-hmm. but it's not great if it's the surface of your skin or your exactly. couch or something exactly. like that so. and uh yeah carpet you know it's notorious for yeah all right so but back to, back to the clay plasters so the thinner is not better thicker is better thinner, thinner is better for yeah for high grade. thinner is more common and then if you think about back to their initial discussion in this conversation 
in terms of market dynamics, right? A bagged product that's consistent and application. Mm -hmm. There are drywall finishing crews in Austin that do the bulk of the American clay work these interesting. days. Interesting. And it was it's interesting, you know, kind of evolution of the product being available to green builders. It was like the realm of specialty artisans and then it gradually has become, you know, the race towards the bottom line or whatever. Mm. Um, and I think that American clay has suffered some from that as mm. well, just because the quality of the applications mm -hmm. has gone way down. But, but it's, you know, the, our approach to it is that we have beautiful clays, everything from deep, dark reds to very light, um, you know, kind of uh, yeah, creamy yellow, brownish warm, gray yeah, or something. warm cream, cream. colors um, available here at basically road bit. Uh, road base production sites where they're just digging up big veins of clay and stuff all the time. Uh, TDS, the dump, is a good source for clay too because they're really? constantly, you know, excavating huge amounts of, of earth and a lot of that area has, that's maybe why they chose that area. There's a, a fairly thick bed of, of clay, which is good for sealing and toxins and things like that. So. Wow, I never uh, thought of that. The yeah. Choosing a site for a, a landfill yeah, I think that's based on encapsulating toxins i don't know that that's their story i just i know that um it may Ken, be undesirable welsh, land too and i should plug kendra welsh uh and clay sand and straw is the name of her company um, she's a natural builder in austin who she's a rice trained architect and does everything from you know custom designs through the complete construction of the of the building we don't fantastic we stay out of all of that type of dynamic we try to be specialized subs and do artisan installations and really focus on the, you know, making these resources available and practical in mm -hmm. kind of the normal workflow. But if you want to, if you have raw land and you want to build a completely natural home on it, Kendra is a, Kendra Walsh is just amazing. That's awesome. It, That's so. exciting. Thank you for plugging that. Mm -hmm. And the, would she have mechanical systems on that? Yeah, she does, I think, various things. I mean, she, I know that she, they built residences that were unconditioned. Okay. And uh, you do that by having a ton of insulation, very thick walls, tons mm -hmm. of thermal mass. All your glazing is oriented to maximize you know, yeah. seasonal changes, mm -hmm. all that stuff. Capture that, prevailing winds. Right. Pa passive design you know, from the 70s basically is the kind of guiding um, principles of natu the natural building, that quote-unquote yeah. world that I was talking yeah. about, which is works very well. depends on your patterns of habitation mm -hmm. and comfort level and stuff like that but mm -hmm. generally they just have much smaller mechanical systems so getting back to what we're talking about we're talking about these walls so so far you've talked about the whole wall is basically a mixture of clay and rubble and rock that was yeah that one that's a unique project and then I mean, that's thinner just and then thinner coatings but they're more like between a half and a quarter inch yeah. And then what's mainstream is this credit card thickness. All of those will have, you know, to the, de to the degree of that there's clay present, they will be a high grit buffer, they will absorb and release moisture, and they will be able to trap VOCs in their structure. Um, they're also, the mass is going to increase, so that means the surface temperature is stabilized. Mm -hmm. And as we all know from the podcast, from other ones, your dominant experience of a experience of a space thermally is in fact the surface temperatures around you. It's yes. not the air temperature. So, 
you are doing what is it you're doing you're you're not doing the credit card thickness you're doing this quarter to half inch thick yeah well, typically we do, or you do a lot of different we things. do a lot of yeah i mean that's part of the problem pretend there's a typically we do a lot of so typically if we were to come into a space like this um we would be you know looking at the trim reveals and trying to figure out what mm. the kind of what the dynamic of the actual application requires of us to consider um but the more that we can get in, the better. And the, the deal with using local natural materials is that we buy this stuff for $20 a yard, $40 a yard, you know, rather than $80 or $100 a bag. Um, so wow. there's almost no material cost to any of it, but there's a lot of knowledge work that goes into it, and there's a ton of Processing and labor, labor like yeah. root labor that, that has to happen to, to make it work. Um, and, Incredible. you know, that's my reality is I, I spend some... I spent a good portion of my, my bandwidth on this kind of higher intellectual conceptual stuff and aesthetics, but the reality of the day to day is just, it's all, it's wet work, you know, it's wet, essentially masonry work. So it's messy and it's a lot of dust and dry materials, a lot of shoveling, a lot of screening, a lot of, yeah, a lot of, a lot of physical labor involved in making it happen. So that's where the price per square foot and the, and like the workflow issues on conventional job sites and all that stuff comes into play. Um, but generally when we do things like retrofitting or remodeling projects, we can just process all the materials offsite, come in with ready to go, put it in the mixer. You know, we do a priming, a special, uh, priming treatment over painted drywall to make sure it's not going to get soft or delaminate or whatever. Okay. I'm trying to, I want to get onto the lime plaster, but I want to do a few, few more quick topics. Quarter inch to three eighths of an inch. Yes. All right. Good. So let's try to go through a few questions, relatively focused answers. Sorry. Ceilings are okay. No, sorry, man. Uh, ceilings are ceilings challenging? are cha- more challenging um, for all the reasons that finishing ceilings are more challenging because of gravity. Generally. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. It's it's harder work, but it's a great so it's a great place to put clay because you're not gonna have any problem with water or cleaning or whatever. So generally, you know, when we're looking around above backsplashes in bathrooms, ceilings, the upper half of the wall. Those are like all the low hanging fruit for packing these really high grade absorb that sort mm-hmm. of materials okay. in. And then winter? Cold, dry conditions, does it become more friable and no. dust entering the space? I've, I've never uh, I've never noticed any any kind of change based on the climate um, to the actual material performance. Okay. Most That's of it you know, most of the kind of considerations are, are about the wear and tear. Because it's a softer uh, binder. Clay is not doesn't have a chemical set it's not like portland cement mm-hmm, stucco or anything mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. um so it's you can mechanically erode it you know if you if you gouge it with a chair back or something like that it's it's gonna show the wear and tear of course all surfaces get wear and tear and um, it's a very easy surface to refinish to patch i often go back to projects that we've done and spend an afternoon two and a half three hours just doing a whole five thousand square foot house just you know, going around and quick patches um, on stuff, and people people can learn to do that themselves too. Uh, but it's it it's very easy to rework this material that's already on the wall. So. Yeah, I was about to ask. That was my question. There is color consistency. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing a patch, are you kind of harvesting from around the patch and smearing that material we, in? Or? We actually save uh, oh, so cookies s- of of all the mixes that we do on on big projects so that we have we usually leave those in the basement or attic or whatever so of, you leave the, the client some cookies yeah we leave them some material um 
for I see for to make sure it matches. So, and then I've but also there will done, be di- variation around as you move through a building, right? Because you're using this natural material. Or, it's amazing, and with, with you, you know we're frying these things over. You know, people have been doing this for a really long time, so there's all kinds of strategies for keeping things consistent. But we also add pigment to the lighter clays. I mean, ah. we use all kinds of ox- natural earth oxides as coloration. Um, there's other additives that are completely natural. Uh, prickly pear cactus makes a pectin when you soak it. That it's like this mucilage that has a bunch of enzyme, um, you know, long protein molecules in it, basically. That when you add it to the plaster, makes it more plastic feeling as you're working it and seals it up a little bit more. So there's all kinds of things we do to add to... That's so cool. Yeah, and people have traditionally used... Um, the petrochemical industry is not liking what no, you're saying here. Prickly pear cactus, what? Yeah. yeah. And people traditionally for floors and walls, they used like livestock blood and dung and... Uh, wheat paste, flour paste, things like that, gluten chain molecules, right? Anything that has like big springy molecules in it works great. So you've done floors as well? We have done some floors, yeah. I've worked on a bunch. Kendra, I've worked for Kendra's um, straw bale projects. We've done some floor work for them and then we've done, there's a big compressor block project out in Wimberley right now that has a large, I think it's like 1,500 square feet or something like that. Pretty large section of earthen floor in it. Awesome. Steven working on that one? He may have been an engineer on that project. I don't know. Um, That's not who I... Yeah, that's not who I know from that project, but um, we we know the client side things in that project. Steven gets around a lot, obviously, because of his connection to earthen building. The last question on clay plaster, if you give us a range of prices. Uh, $4 a square foot is pretty... um, doable for most remodeling and that's not per square foot like a 1500 square foot house you mean per square foot of walls yeah if we're doing like a uh you know single room in a house or it just depends on the scale obviously right um so it it goes from everything from if you're working with a a straw bale wall system obviously you're going to have places where that the thickness of the materials you got to put four or five coats on and just to manage the working characteristics of it and you're getting thicknesses of an inch and a half, two inches deep into the wall system between the finish and the, mm-hmm. and the interior of the skin. Uh, so obviously that's more expensive. Those are more like eight dollars a square foot for the mm-hmm. the type of. Mm-hmm. But that's that's really I start considering the plaster skin as part of the the walls assembly in a in a much more like intense way. Much more. It's it's part of the way the wall actually is designed to function from the get go. So. It's not a finished material in that case. It's, you know, you have to think about it as, as one of the um, structural and performance. It's the air barrier on the exterior. Yeah. It's the, you know, vapor control layer. Um, yeah, that, that's what we'll stuff. talk about now. Talk about lime plaster. Before we do a lime plaster, let's do a little break, a little philosophical break. Because I'm remembering being in a lot of cob walls and uh, earthen buildings. And I'm also remembering hearing architects and general contract and, and thinking about the walls, let's just mm-hmm. say. Um, and the walls have some natural curves and natural p- texture to it. They're not perfectly straight. And yet there are architects and builders that are just like, you know, this sight line has to be dead on straight, you know, and completely flat. We, we as a society seem to take that as like the, the pinnacle of my craft is mm-hmm. how plumb and true I can get a wall. And yet I know, so I, I used to do some pattern, rec- pattern recognition uh, when I worked for the university and we talked about 
high fractal content scenes, mm -hmm. high fractal content scenes, mm -hmm. high fractal content scenes, mm -hmm. high fractal high content scenes. So like you said, dappled sunlight, yeah. you know, waves, trees, fields, versus low yeah. fractal content scenes, which are a lot of rectilinear right angles and flat surfaces. Mm -hmm. And low fractal content scenes being strongly associated with depression. Mm -hmm. They did some studies with, with um, inmates, actually. It's kind of sad, but... They're, they're seeing a lot of uh, low fractal content scenery. Absolutely. And yet, so here we are, we go hospitals. into the highest in hospitals, exactly. So we know that biologically we respond to high fractal content mm -hmm. positively. And yet, the pinnacle of architecture in some ways is like flat plum, like low fractal content. Yeah. It's What's supposed to be that? uncomfortable. I mean, that's... It's supposed you know, to be uncomfortable. If to a, yeah, if you talk to a modern, you know, someone who's really into modern architecture, the philosophy behind that is that the human occupant is, is um, you know, it's like creating, it's, it's actually crafting a fairly sharp, abstract, Interesting. Like, harsh environment for the, for the occupant to then create within, you know, put a piece of art so on the wall. Stark or, it's stark. Yes, it's stark, right. Yeah. It doesn't have its own character and its own life. Mm -hmm. um, and you're not in the constant feedback loop of kind of, like you said, those high fractal patterns, which I take to mean like, Basically, the scale of, of if, you, if you look at one square inch of it, you know, the differentiation, the visual and sensible differentiation in that one inch is going to be relatively similar to a large chunk of the wall or even the whole building. You know, that fractal relationship between yeah. scale. And you get that with, with natural materials. These materials are, you know, generally prized for just being naturally beautiful they have a lot of character they have mm -hmm, a lot of mm -hmm. movement and variation of, um, of aesthetic and so are you challenged to make them flat excuse me interrupting. no 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 that it's you can do that right like a drywall substrate is flat already so you know if we came into a building we would flatten these walls just because there's there's that much movement from the settling of the building and stuff this hundred year old building that we're in yeah yeah right the walls would end up probably reading a little flatter and really a little cleaner so you don't purposely try to keep put some character in and some i leave that up to the clients and architects okay so they, they so you generally, okay yeah yeah I, exactly. that's good to push back because i was assuming it was implicitly more uh, variation Na in your product yeah quote unquote natural building is generally the aesthetic if you just google natural buildings you're going to see a lot of very kind of hippie-ish undulating rounded corners yeah, yeah. lots of and there's a lot to that, but that's obviously not what most most people want, um, and I'm no place to decide one Love way or the it. other. I think my my inclination has gone more and more towards um, just hitting kind of the average, you know, of what people um, are comfortable with, and then, like you said, with the fractal patterns, um, offering all that differentiation and the aesthetic richness or whatever in the materials themselves rather than just like the shape of the building or the, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and you can, I think it's even, it's less cluttered, less busy. Miguel and I were in Houston, I guess it's about a year ago now, we saw this speaker, Ann Sussman, and she's at, oh, I'm not gonna know where she's at. She's at, I think MIT, some 
pattern recognition lab, something like that, mm -hmm. something to do with neuroscience. But she has talked a lot about the uh, mental disorders behind modern architecture, about um, mm -hmm. Corbusier having autism, being afraid of seeing a face. It has to do with when you, we look at a building as a mammal, we're naturally looking to see a face. Mm. But then there's certain people with certain personality or psychological disorders where they don't want to see faces. They're not good at eye contact, like think right, Rain right, Man right. or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, these people design faceless buildings. And oh boy, was <laughs> this provocative at an architect's yeah. conference. Yeah, yeah, we should try to interview her, Miguel. That, that sounds good. That'd be a good one. All right, so last topic. I was tempted to make your home the last topic, but. We'll save that. Let's talk about lime plaster. Mm -hmm. um, again, a topic that I don't think the petrochemical industry is happy to hear about, and not that we're going to end their hegemony. In, in Portland. In Portland, yeah, in the cement industry, yes, SEMA. Hardy. What, yes, so what is, what is natural lime plaster, and where is it used? Um, so, so lime is the binder um, in, the, in that and so a plaster mix or a render or mortar or any of those those different kind of categories is basically um, a calcium hydroxide binder so it's uh, which I'll get into separately if you want me to but mm -hmm. it's basically the lime the lime is acting like in stucco Portland cement is the, the chemical uh, binder lime doesn't have the type of chemistry and chemical set characteristics that Portland cement does so obviously it has to be treated differently, different types of applications are appropriate for it. And I don't have anything against Portland cement, you know. Portland cement, uh, they, they've had to heat it. They've made an anhydrous material by anhydrous. baking out the water out of it. And you do you do that with um, lime as well. That's the way lime is you produced. Slake it. Yeah, lime, so lime starts as calcium carbonate. It's just limestone. Lots of different types of that naturally occurring. Um, and then you heat it to about 900 degrees centigrade something in that round like 16 50 or something like that fahrenheit so you can do that uh, with a normal fire yeah yeah we're building a little clay um, kiln right now actually to try and fire some for this project awesome and see what happens with that this would be the first time i would ever have um, created my own binder there's a ton of lime being produced in this area because we just have a lot of limestone yeah so some big international players have manufacturing facilities in new brunsville and uh, then there's local as well. That, I didn't know that. that so internationally, that. this is a lime-producing region. Uh, yeah, this. I mean, this is kind of the hub for lime production for this region of the of the southern okay. United States. Okay, but, so not internationally. But they, the companies, the conglomerates that own that particular manufacturing, is a is a global ah, corporation. Okay, so okay. There's big business in lime, and it's used in a lot of different situations. It's used in regular stucco work as well as mm -hmm. plasticizer primarily. Uh, and to increase permeability, people even get into that with stucco. Most of the time, they don't. Um, <laughs> but basically, lime lime uh, mineral matrix is is just aggregates that are well graded from whatever your largest size you're going to, which is defined by the application. Whether it's a mortar bed that you're trying to get a half inch thickness, mm -hmm. uh, you need a certain size sand, you know, maximum granular size to get to get the type of load bearing you're gonna be just. Um, aimed at and then for like a plaster you know it's going to be a, a much wetter application it's not going to be as thick and oatmeal-y as you're putting it down so you've got a lot more um, water a lot of the lime is in suspension that changes the way right. it works there's just um, you basically tweak all the, the independent parts of it which are generally some uh, well-graded aggregate lime as the primary binder 
some sort of fiber is fairly common for especially for plaster applications just to increase you know yeah. physical performance uh, and to be able to build larger thicknesses up and water and you know you're 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 creating this highly caustic very high pH uh, plaster material that as it dries out it's going from that calcium hydroxide which you've created by adding water back to what you create once you've burned all the carbon dioxide out of the original calcium carbonate. So it goes calcium carbonate, you heat it up, it blows off a bunch of carbon dioxide. Um, it's At that point, it's mostly calcium oxide. Then you take that calcium oxide, which is known as quicklime, you add water to it, it turns into calcium hydroxide. You put it on the wall or in the wall or whatever. As it absorbs carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, mm -hmm, as it's drying, mm -hmm. it turns back into calcium carbonate, forms calcite crystals, you know, all through the matrix mm -hmm. to kind of um, bind the sand particles together. Yeah, lime is the corner, basically the cornerstone of all civilizations building practices up until uh, 100 years ago. I mean, basically everything was done with lime as the primary binder. So any, any building that was built before, you know, uh, like mid 1700s doesn't doesn't have Portland cement mm -hmm. in it. It has some some naturally occurring. Oftentimes, limestone will have some of the the chemistry that Portland cement kind of creates um, mm -hmm. naturally occurring in the limestone parent material, and you can harness that to create some of the same hydraulic characteristics. Mm -hmm. um, and that's pretty common Roman cement. Uh, but mm -hmm. everything, all those old because volcanic aesthetics. activity could dry out, could create anhydrous. Materials, is that yes, right? you can add poslons to the lime as well. That's a whole uh, different thing. You can actually use volcanic materials uh, or like calcined clays even. Mm -hmm. If you lightly burn clay, this is very common in India. Hmm. Um, they made tiles especially for adding to, crushing up and adding to lime mixes in order to create that kind of chemistry. And there's a lot of different sources, natural sources um, for poslons, which is the type of chemical that you want to add to the, to the lime to create that hydraulic set. And when I say hydraulic, I mean it doesn't need to absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in order to, to get to its working strength characteristics. Um, it can actually just use the water that's available in the mix to yeah. create a binder like Portland cement does. Okay, and j just so people know what we're talking about, so this natural lime plaster, it's a stucco substitute. It's yeah, like basically. So on my, on my house, I'm using, you know, I, I'll, it's a conventional frame and dense pack cellulose insulation, a bunch of clay plaster skin on the inside, which I'm doing in a way that's not very conventional, but... You're not um, doing sheetrock with that? No, no, I'm keeping sheetrock out of it altogether. You have a screed, or what do you do on the inside? Yeah. All right, doing, let's talk about your house as yeah. the last Well, <laughs> but to, the, the, lime, the lime part of it is I'm going to, I'm basically creating a, a ventilated rain screen <laughs> assembly, just like you would with... Really? Like, You're doing ventilated rain screen, like stucco assembly yeah man lime so all stuccos are reservoir claddings right yes they absolutely. all hold a lot and it's one of the characteristics we actually love about lime is fairly high capacity for mm -hmm. for moisture right so very porous um matrix and it performs admirably as the outside skin of a building if you aren't just allowing the sun to drive all the moisture that accumulates into it <laughs> into the into inside the of the building right um, and you have to be really careful, you know, the way you design air barriers and the way you think about vapor diffusion in a wall system when you're using lime as your primary cladding on the outside. Um, but you really have to do even more careful design if you're using conventional stucco 
because it, you know those materials also bring a lot of moisture in inside of that cladding, uh, but then they don't let it back out. Yeah. And lime obviously it almost throws moisture off in its static state. The the way the chemical charge, the electrical charge of the chemistry and everything is. Um, I don't know very much about that, but it, it basically self dehydrates. Like uh, magnesium oxide is famous for that mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. And there's people that are going more towards magnesium oxide than the calcium oxide, which is the basis for the lime binders. Um, but we just have a ton of limestone here, and it we make good lime here, and it's a great binder if you design the assembly properly. And it's beautiful. It's easy to work with um, up to a point in the year. It does. It is temperature sensitive, um, and you do have to control the cure fairly carefully. So it gets a little bit more expensive the more uh, work we have to do to protect the initial like week or. When is it worse when it's cold or hot. worse when it's hot? Yeah, we don't get cold enough here usually. You don't want it to freeze with any moisture in in the wall in the matrix. Um, but you do. It, it can. So when you're doing it in the hot, water. you're constantly having to rehydrate it. Yeah, you're out there until sundown some days, misting the wall. We hang berline, which is like a burlap with laminated, you know, poly on the outside of it that won't let air through and traps all the moisture. You wet down the burlap side of it, and it keeps lots of moisture, you know, six eight inches off the surface of the plaster. There's a lot of like again. That's why the knowledge work part of it makes it. Uh, not very practical for yeah. modern construction workflows, um, but for for maximizing performance, it's a great it's a great air barrier. There are a lot mm-hmm. of things about it that make a makes sense in our climate as the first line of defense um, on the outside of the building. You just have to be really careful about the whole assembly, how much moisture yeah, storage there is, what the evaporation dynamics are, drying and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I think each homeowner should build their own house. In that. Yeah. I mean, I've built mine, and it's it's a great experience to do it and live in it. And yeah. I mean, it's a that, huge pain in the... It's also a huge time, <laughs> huge time sink, and right. it was a financially rough. But, okay, so how are you accomplishing this ventilated rain screen? It's, well, it's pretty conventional from the sheathing out. It's just replacing the stucco with the, with the traditional lime mm-hmm. uh, mix. So it's a zip system, you know, liquid apply flashing where appropriate okay so quite quite traditional okay yeah i don't um this this is just this one kind of hybrid it's a small building it's the first phase of what we're planning on doing on the property eventually Uh, but i really have seen more potential for using these natural materials in conventional more conventional wall assemblies the more I understand about the actual building science of it, the more I get drawn into like where where in a conventional can assembly can we interject this? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Material. And, um, you know, basically you got to be careful of a few things that are common in stucco. Um, where I'm going to, I think what I'm going to use is the boral uh, drain and dry product because it's a, you've got drying potential on both sides of that, of that product and you've got a, a, a pre-applied um, fiberglass stucco mesh on the outside Mm -hmm. you gotta have to be careful with lime with metal stucco mesh because it does hold a lot of moisture in there it's a high alkaline environment you can create rust problems and stuff Mm -hmm. so um there's a delta dry stucco stone is similar yeah Mm -hmm. you're welcome casella dorkin (laughs) yeah i like i like the ones that have the fiberglass mesh for sure that makes sense for for what i'm doing it's faster it seems like a workflow i've never done that assembly before um, but it seems like something that I could maybe find takers on in I the future. It. So, 
Yeah, yeah I, was, I was curious how you were going to do the ventilated rain screen with all natural products. And I, I like the fact, but I bet you could. <laughs> you can. You but can. I like the fact that, you know, sort of um, philosophically almost, you're saying, well, how can I move what I do closer to mainstream construction and therefore get more uptake and, yeah. well, and I early think there's, adopters? I think there's a lot of bad, um, bad juju in the natural building world because people have come at it from this very philosophical, back to the earth, um, kind of aesthetically driven mm-hmm. um, You're either with lifestyle. us or you're against yeah, us. Very much. I mean, you can almost see a division in the generations of people that, you know, mm-hmm. pre-information age and post-information age, like the way people feel about it. And I think, you know, because of that, there's been a lot of bad buildings built that don't perform very well, um, that claim they should perform well because it's all natural wall systems. And uh, But there's things that, there's lots of good uses for manufactured and highly engineered materials mm-hmm. in buildings. <laughs> There's yeah. lots of reasons that we want to be using those things. Um, we just don't want to like that to be the only, like we still have legs. We don't need only crutches. You know, we can, we can like prop <laughs> up the way the mechanical systems work and the way that, you know, a conventional yeah. wall simply um, works by using materials that are here that also, I mean, lime is almost carbon neutral because it's, there is energy put into it to burn off that carbon dioxide, but it also absorbs carbon dioxide back into it. So it's not completely carbon neutral, but it is much closer to being, um, you know, kind of a sane, sustainable exterior coating than just about anything else on the market. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much less embodied energy in it. It can be scraped off and just put right into the ground when it's done. It's inert minerals, you know, good for indoor air quality. It's yeah. great for, you know. And almost undoubtedly, the indoor microbiome is being positively affected with that right. material. I mean, every hospital or like surgical room or in any place that needed to be sterilized for all of human history was lime. You use lime wash and lime surfaces on everything because antifungal, antimicrobial. Yeah. Uh, Back at, we did a Boy Scout camp every summer, and we had a latrine that uh, had a little bucket of lime next to it. After you did your business, you're supposed to put it in there. Hmm. Uh, one of the other effects of lime that we found out in that same Boy Scout camp was that if you if you place a very thin layer of it on the toilet seat, you can't see it, but whoever sits down next is going to oh. get a little burn. We were, we were bad kids. <laughs> nice, nice chemical burn. Had a lot of fun. Yeah, I was a Boy Scout too. I, I almost broke my arm um, helping to carry a, helping to carry a friend of mine's cot up to the top of a pine tree. <laughs> 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 yeah, that sounds about right. Wow, that was a feast of ideas, Brad. I'm so glad to come in that you came in yeah, today to sorry, share so with us. That's all right. And you know, those of you who are listening, by the way, just to show you how organic and natural this podcast can be, um, for various reasons, Brad came into the office today. We started talking and just said, "Hey, let's record this." So sometimes natural podcasts can occur <laughs> on natural building. All right, thank you again, Brad. All right, thank you. Well done, guys, and thank you all for listening. Don't forget to share the episode.